This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good morning, sir. It was great seeing you this past weekend in uh, lovely Prince George. I guess lovely is a relative term, I suppose, right? At least the weather was okay. Oh, it was a great trip. So, you know, we were up there. We had our hornaging event in Prince George's past weekend. We had, uh, we sold out. Uh, we absolutely packed Trench Brewery. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just such a great weekend. We had so much fun. You know, we had a ton of members there. And uh, it was just so good to get be together, talking about wild sheep, uh, talking hornaging, seeing the new film transmission. Mm-hmm. How was the weekend for you? How did you find the event? It was a long day on Saturday, but... It, it was worth it. The beer was awesome. The company was great. Food was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was good to finally get together in person to uh, to BS and, and talk about all things wild sheep and get together with a bunch of like-minded people that truly care. Yeah, it was really cool. And let, so let's talk about the beer. So we got a brand new beer release, a Trench Brewery. Thanks. Uh, hats off to uh, Jesse and Craig and Bailey over at Trench there for supporting us on this. So we're doing a conservation series of beer. We're going to do all four subspecies in BC. And we started off with a California Common. Um, it's a California Bighorn uh, Lager. Beautiful beer. The label is exquisite. It's it's something, you know, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh a play on our very own secretary greg Grensmag's photo it's it's awesome the artwork is just phenomenal and the beer matches it it is you know uh i i don't drink a ton of beer but um that's exactly the beer that i drink when i do um so i i picked up an eight pack and uh i'm just trying to figure a way to get it to the island here so i'm gonna see if we can set it up with trench and get uh some sort of delivery because i'm pretty sure you know, we'll sell, we could probably sell a crate of it here. There'd be guys take several flats of it. Um, but it's, it's super easy drinking. Um, you know, Trench, it's interesting. Mike Southern, our VP, he drinks that stuff exclusively. He's like, man, that's my favorite beer. He goes, mm-hmm. they're, they're a microbrewery in, in Prince George there. They do a great job and just loves it. And I have to admit that was my first experience with them and loved it as well. So, yeah. No, for those uh, in the North, you can get Get it at liquor stores in uh, Dawson, Fort St. James. Uh, you can get it out around Vanderhoof, Smithers. We've got some spots in Kamloops, some spots in Kelowna, Vernon, Penticton, Williams Lake. All over the place you can get it, except the island for now. But uh, I think you're going to work on changing that. Yeah, we'll see what we can do. I actually don't know that they've actually got that. They've got it out in the liquor stores yet because they literally released it last week. So um, don't go in just yet with the full expectation. Sure, go in and check, but don't. If it's not there, don't get angry because. Uh, but they are working on distribution now. Here's the yeah. interesting part: for every four pack that you buy, one dollar comes back to Wild Sheep Society of BC. So this is a conservation series beer. So we get a buck back and we're going to put that on the ground for wild sheep conservation in the province. So pretty cool organization that they're supporting us to that level. And um, we're going to do four of these beers. We've got one. Uh, we're already working on this fall's beer as well that uh, we're hoping to release in November. So really, really exciting. Yeah, th- those locations I mentioned are places you can get trench trench beer. So go in there and because uh, they're shipping there, you can ask for it if they don't have it. And I'm sure they would get it down to you. Awesome. Uh, I do believe you can buy stuff online. They have a through their website, you can purchase it as well. So if you're really keen to get it, obviously, there's a shipping charge involved with that. But if somebody's really keen on getting it, like I said, I'm going to work with the owners and see if we can get something down here. 
and it might just be a scenario where I end up with a, uh, a crate of it in my driveway and you might have to come by, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just that good. It's definitely worth it. So, um, cool. All right. So this is a great episode. Episode 52, Helen Swansha. Helen's re- oh, sorry. 72. Just seeing Se- if you're paying attention. 72. Yeah. Thanks. He only told me that three times before we started recording. <laughs> um, so Helen, uh, Swansha, she is the retired provincial, uh, wildlife veterinarian for the Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development. Glad I don't have to say that anymore. Um, and Helen has been really involved with the Wild Sheep Society BC. She's got a keen interest in bighorn sheep and sheep in general. She also sits on uh, the Professional Reliance Advisory Board for the Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, she's a member of the Wild Sheep Society BC, and she's just been a stalwart for wild sheep within the province. Ever since I've been at the table, Helen's been involved, and she's been doing it literally for decades. Um, just such an authority on wild sheep. Oh, she's so much fun to talk to. I got to, to meet her for the first time down in Reno in 2020 before shit went sideways. And just an absolute wealth of knowledge. And she talks to you in, in a way you'll understand. It's it's not uh, scientific to the point where you go, what, my head's spinning? It's 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 all relatable. And and she's very, very real in her approach. And uh, we, we got to, to watch Transmission. I got to watch it for the second or third time this past weekend. And Helen is the superstar in that. And the first couple of minutes of it, uh, her delivery will, will grab you. So and she does the same sort of thing here in the podcast. And I'm just so thankful that she's able to give us an hour of her time. Yeah, I, that's the one thing with Helen is I honestly, of all the people I talk to around the wild sheep world, and uh, she probably has the most respect of anyone I know that people just respect what she has done throughout her career and her, um, you know, her knowledge and acumen and leadership. Uh, it just, it's unmatched and unparalleled. I don't, you know, there's not too many people that stand out uh, more than Helen and you just talk to anyone and it's just a consistent theme. Uh, people just look to her as the go-to because she just is, she's a force for wildlife. She's a force for wild sheep. She's so knowledgeable and has such a, a level of respect that it's, uh, really unparalleled so this is a great podcast we talk lots about uh, the fraser river project the wild sheep society bc's in uh involved in and we just try and get a better understanding a little bit about Moby and what's involved and uh, yeah it's a really cool talk with helen uh we we had to cut it off because uh we could just sit there and talk literally oh, yeah. three hours we'll yeah. definitely have her back in the fall and, and talk more about wild sheep because there's so much more that we couldn't even get into so yeah. um on a housekeeping end of things, um, we've got uh, really five cool raffles on the go right now. So we've got our doll sheep hunt in in the Yukon. Um, that's well on its way to selling out. So I, I wouldn't recommend you wait around too much longer. Um, we're not drying it till August, but it's going to sell out prior to that. And then we currently have four other raffles on our website. So if you just go to our homepage and click on the raffles link, uh, we've got a Corlane Armar rifle raffle that we literally just posted last night. It's a beautiful setup from Corlane Sporting Goods. Uh, 50 bucks a ticket. It's an $8,400 rig, and it's absolutely just stunning. 270 WSM, beautiful setup. And then we also have uh, our Big Boar rifle series. We we posted that this week, and it is gone. It'll sell out today, I think. Um, just another Don Lynham Ly- uh, lineup rifle, stunning rifle. Um, $7,000 package, beautiful. Um, him and Gary put this thing together and it's absolutely stunning. 6.5 PRC, so it's a pretty popular sheep rifle. I, I run that caliber as well and uh, it's going to sell out shortly. 
And then we also have our uh, conservation partner, Stone Glacier's got that gear and apparel mm-hmm. raffle, beautiful setup there. So I definitely want to pick up one of those tickets. And then we've got a really cool Zeiss optics package. We've got uh, range finder, binos, uh, spotter, and a rifle scope. Um, it's a not $8,700 package. So we got tickets selling on that too. So uh, lots of places to put your money. And Steve, why should they be buying these? Because they can win cool stuff or why else? Because we... We, we put our money where our mouth is. We put over $318,000 on the ground last year because of uh, raffles and fundraisers like this. So if you're looking to make an impact on the ground and you don't have a couple hours to actually get out and, and take part, a 50-buck ticket actually makes makes a difference. It's a way of giving back quick and easy. So don't forget the doll sheep hunt. We got that as well and our membership raffle or our membership drive. So you become a member. Spend spend a few bucks and uh, get a chance to actually give back to an organization that uh, gives back. Yeah, let's let's do this. Let's for our listeners, anyone that's not a member, anyone that upgrades, um, that listens to this podcast, um, and that upgrades, um, send us an email when you if you buy a membership or upgrade, and send us an email, and we're gonna so we'll run this for the next month. We'll we'll announce it for the next uh, four podcasts. So let's do it till the end of May. And let's give away our new hat and new T-shirt. So we got a leather patch hat and we got a new uh, stone sheep T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Um, we'll put you in a special draw for that. So from this podcast only. So just send us an email once you've upgraded. So you can get in on this cool membership drive. It's a sturgeon fishing trip on the Fraser River. Um, absolutely great day out. Um, there's three levels of prizes, but the grand prize is that. That's underwritten by Wood Wheaton Supercenter. Thanks to them for sponsoring us on that. Get a ticket on, buy a buy a membership. Let us know. Email us. We'll put your name in a drawing. You're gonna have pretty good odds because there's not gonna be thousands of people in this one. Um, you know, there's gonna be a handful of people. So let us know. But you gotta send us an email saying, "Yeah, I upgraded today," um, or "I bought a membership." Uh, I'm challenging everyone to listen. Let's listen to the podcast. We're giving you this. We, we're putting sheep on the mountain. Let's do our best to give back. Buy a membership. You get something out of it. And plus you get your name in for two chances to win. Actually, four chances to win. There's three chances to win on the membership drive and then plus the, the hat and shirt yep. as well. So episode, we say 52. Okay, just kidding. 72, Dr. Helen Schwansha. Uh, enjoy. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Well, Helen, welcome to the show, and thank you. I, I've been working at on this for months slash years to to get you on a call, and I and I know you're always oh yeah, but but here we are finally. So thank you so much. No, oh, you're welcome. It's really good to see your faces and uh, have a chance to talk. Awesome. So there's so much I want to cover today, Helen, um, and I've had the luxury of kind of seeing you know the young Helen through film, having seen the new film Transmission. And uh, Kevin Hurley did a fantastic tribute to you at the um, Sheep Show this year. Uh, of course, you won the uh, – no, what did you win an award this year or was it a recognition because of your retirement? No, was Kevin, it all- Kevin and his family donated money years ago to develop an award for 
the wildlife biologist of the year or the, basically the sheep biologist of the year. I, he forgets I'm not a biologist, but that's okay. I'll still take it. And he, um, so he always takes a moment during the sheep show and, and celebrates somebody who's been working in the background. And honestly, it's a big honor. And um, whether I'm a biologist or a veterinarian, it doesn't particularly matter. The worst part with having to go through a bunch of pictures and, and try to figure out what would be appropriate for an audience and, and not to be there. I, it was really, really hard not to be there. And I, um, I know everybody celebrated without me, but uh, I tell you, the whole pandemic thing has really put a, a kink in my social life. <laughs> yeah, uh, f fair enough. And we did miss you. And it was a fantastic tribute. It was yeah. in true Kevin Hurley fashion. It was half an hour long or 20 minutes. Um, but it was fantastic. There was such great content. And I can tell you that our table was just glued to the screen. We listened to every word. Um, and it was just uh, a great tribute to you. So I guess for those of you that aren't quite as familiar with Helen, young Helen, you know, let's talk about how you became the the most influential person in wild sheep in BC, uh, possibly the world, but certainly BC. Oh, for God's uh, sake! Well, tell that's us how. Totally debatable. But yeah. <laughs> um, I I grew up in Victoria. I I uh, was one of six kids and uh, had a pretty. Um, a pretty independent childhood um, hung out with my brother, one of my brothers and who's actually here loading firewood. Thank goodness. Um, so we haven't lost that connection. And he, um, he and I hung out at the beach and rode our bikes to Mount Doug park and dug up dinosaur bones that we found later were cows and uh, just had a great life. But I um, mostly uh, in my personal life uh, read. I was a avid, avid reader. And one of the books series that I read was um, a, a bunch of books by a man by the name of Gerald Durrell, who was a super interesting conservationist and eventually opened up a rare animal breeding facility on Jersey Island in the English Channel. So at the age of 11, I wrote him and I said, I want to be just like you. I want to travel the world and collect animals and save, save wildlife. And uh, he, he or somebody in his office wrote me back and told me to, you know, figure out a career and basically don't be silly. You've got lots of options. And so then I wrote other people and that I admired through articles in National Geographic and encyclopedias and just I, I just wanted to work with wild animals in in the in the free world in the in the greater context and uh, didn't really get a ton of help but I I had that ambition. Um, as time went on, I realized that it was probably not the most practical uh, way of of getting a career. So I I, uh, I looked into veterinary medicine and uh, frankly was kind of bored with vet clinics and didn't really think I was smart enough. And uh, it took far too long and I wanted it and I wanted it now. So when I, I got out of high school, I wrote 50 letters to zoos across North America and got two replies. 
uh, one was in Ontario and one was in British Columbia. So I packed up my Volkswagen and I drove to Summerland and uh, lived in a boarding house and worked at the Okanagan Game Farm, which was a sort of a zoo, but also more of a free ranging zoo, great big exhibits with uh, animals just allowed to breed on their own. Um, it's not there anymore. It was built on leased Penticton Indian band land and that lease expired and it's gone now. But I spent eight months uh, shoveling just about every kind of poop that you can imagine things from giraffes to um, grizzly bears, bighorn sheep, eland, all kinds of things. And one of my jobs was to uh, raise orphaned, well, actually not orphan, but just raised uh, big cats and bears that uh, were going to be sold to other zoos or circuses. Like this is really basic stuff and uh, smacks a little bit of uh, uh, the tiger world. Like I wasn't exactly Carol Baskin, but I can see how that happened. And uh, so the picture that you see of me cuddling a tiger cub was uh, me raising a tiger cub. So I was 17. It was uh, a dream come true. I got to hand raise moose and bighorn sheep and tigers and lions and bears. And it was uh, pretty basic. They did not have a vet on staff. Um, they didn't have a biologist on staff. They had just a heck of a lot of passion and quite a bit of knowledge, but they didn't have a lot of money. So uh, I, I learned things sort of by trial and error and uh, learned you, you don't go in a pen with a rutting musk oxen because you're going to die. Um, one of my, one of the sons of the owner, I came upon him one day. He was, he was pinned to the ground by a whitetail buck that had gone for him and had his antlers pinning him to the ground and the antlers were just like it cleared him by inches on either side of his chest. It was incredible. So that's the kind of thing we were doing. We're just a bunch of kids taking care of these animals in any way that we could. Um, I learned quite a bit from the owner and his staff. Um, but I also learned, I, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. And I, I went uh, back home when I got laid off for the winter and sat in my mother's kitchen unexpectedly and, and thought, this is, this is crazy. I gotta, I gotta do something. Now I'm 18, right? <laughs> I'm getting old. I, I gotta decide on something. So I got a piece of paper and I wrote down what I wanted out of life and how I was going to get it. And I'm not usually that methodical, but I, uh, I figured, okay, I guess I'm going to have to be a vet working with wild animals that's just going to have to be it. And uh, I'll have to borrow money and I'll just have to buckle down and get good grades. And that's what I'm going to do. So I, uh, I went and worked in a vet clinic where there was, uh, I, I'd, I'd known these people for quite some time and had done a little bit of, of volunteer work for them. And, um, but they ended up being a super good support system for me and uh, applied to go back to school and went back to University of Victoria and got prerequisites and uh, got into vet school. Um, when you get to vet school in 1977, you don't have much choice of what you're going to be. So there was no sort of track to wildlife or even a track to, uh, to take, uh, to do horses. So you just learned everything you could. 
And when you said anything about wildlife, you were looked upon as somewhat fringe element. And uh, uh, so I just did the best I could and uh, came out with a, a pretty wide um, education, a good education, I think, and came back to British Columbia and worked on Vancouver Island in uh, a bunch of different practices. After about a year of that, you can butt in any time if you want. Um, I do. I do have a question for you. Were you? How many women were in the program? Was there a lot of female vets in that program? Um, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of about sixty students in our class, and about a third of those were women. And that was okay. that was unheard of then. Um, mm. It rapidly changed, um, but there was you know the good old boys in the back of the room with cowboy hats from Settler, Alberta, and uh, some super interesting characters from other places in Western Canada um, and lots of urban urbanites from Vancouver and, and Calgary and Edmonton. And the college I went to was in Saskatoon and it accepted people from Northwest territories, Yukon, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba. And yeah, it was a, a good group of people for really intense years, but uh it prepared me in many ways, but it didn't prepare me enough for, for other, in other ways too. Um, I, I got bored with practice. I'll be really honest. I worked cows, horses, pigs, you name it. And, uh, dogs and cats. And after about a year of that, I, I wanted to do some traveling. So I packed my backpack and went to New Zealand and Australia for almost a year and just hitchhiked around and had some adventures some of those were involved with um, animals. I, I ended up going to a lot of farms and staying on those farms and working on them. And some of those farms led me even deeper into the idea of wildlife. Um, I worked on a deer farm in New Zealand. And it was at the time that they had just started uh, net gunning deer, uh, capturing deer from the wild and putting them into captivity. So I met some of the first uh, helicopter pilots and net gunners that ever did it and uh, and then brought their skill set to North America. So I was pretty lucky. I, I got in on the ground floor and got to know some people and some techniques that have now become really commonplace in North America. Uh, when I When I came back to North America from traveling, I'd left my dog in my car in Saskatoon with friends. And I'd done a ton of thinking, you know, when you're hitchhiking and you don't get picked up because there's no traffic for hours on end, you do a lot of thinking and you think about what you want to be and what you want to do. And I realized that um, the education I had was great, but it wasn't really what I wanted. And I, if I was going to get into wildlife, I was going to have to do a master's or some kind of postgraduate work. And I was lucky I had a, a very inspiring professor um, that taught me pathology at Saskatoon. Um, frankly, I think he still has his hands in teaching people now. And he um, was in his office when I got back to Saskatoon. And I walked in there and I said, Gary, how about you take me on as a master's student because I want to do wildlife. And obviously the easiest wildlife to work on are dead ones. So let's do a pathology degree. And he said, uh, well, what do you want to work on for a project? And I knowing that he was really interested in fish and, and waterfowl, I said something 
bigger than a bread box, not fish, not birds. And he had just come back from um, a, a little bit of a contract doing some necropsies in the East Kootenai. There had been a die-off uh, in the early 80s. I'm sure you guys remember that in your history books. And he had gone out and done some necropsies and he was super interested in it. And he said, what about bighorn sheep and their respiratory disease? And I went, eh, sure, yeah, okay, that'd be super interesting. And he said, go back to Victoria and go talk to uh, this um, gentleman there who is the head of research and conservation. We actually had um, a division that was research and conservation in the wildlife branch in those days. And uh, he said, uh, his name is Don Eastman, and you should go talk to him and uh, see if he can set you up with a project. So packed up the dog in the car, drove to Victoria, knocked on Don's door. And uh, Don also had a strong interest in bighorn sheep. He'd done some of his postgraduate work on that. And his comment was, holy shit, a vet wants to do a master's on bighorn sheep. That's pretty cool. And he said, you know what you got to do? You got to drive to Cranbrook and you got you to gotta meet Ray DeMarchi. Well, I, um, those were the first two biologists pretty much I'd ever met. And uh, Don was the, is still the ultimate gentleman, um, a rational, calm, uh, lovely man, uh, very collaborative, really, uh, really a fa fabulous mentor. And Ray's different than that. <laughs> when I got to uh, Cranbrook and uh, went into the office, all I could hear was screaming in the background. And uh, Ray was yelling at one of his staff members. Um, Ray just passed away this past year. And uh, I, I know everybody's got lots of memories of Ray. You guys are old enough to have met him. And uh, he was passionate. He was highly intelligent and he did not suffer fools and he was ranting on about something or other. That's another story, but he became my primary uh, biologist mentor in, in uh, bighorn sheep uh, research. And we talked a long time. We uh, started a project and that was uh, my master's that went on till about I think I finished it in 1987. So it took a, a little while, but uh, ended up introducing me to the world of wild sheep. Very cool. So you, I want to continue with the history, but while we're here, can you just, it's interesting, like the, talk about early 80s, a die off in the Kootenays. Mm -hmm. You know, history does repeat itself. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, then versus now? What did wild sheep look like now? You know, we're all panicking, the sky's falling, and, you know, there's all this stuff on the Fraser and the Kootenays, and, you know, are we in better shape? Or are we in worse Did you Have you left the state of wild sheep in BC better than you found it, or, or where do we sit with that, Helen? Um, well, it'll never be the way it was in the 1920s, the 1940s, 1960s, or the 1980s. It never will be. There's too many demands on the landscape and on the wildlife that live there. Um, the Kootenays has developed uh, hugely, and the pressure on that landscape and that habitat is, is enormous. Um, it's not just what's happened to the landscape, but it's um, pressure from the air, pressure from the, the roads, uh, disturbance from people, 
uh, access management, all of those same issues existed then, but they've been amplified um, probably 50-fold. Uh, you know, stats are not my strong point, but they've been amplified to the degree that we're never going to see it the way it was. Um, I In those days, the understanding of well, Bighorn Health was in some ways similar, but the complexities of how um, pneumonia occurred on the landscape and what uh, what the details are about transmission of pathogens, um, how the animals function uh, when infected and how they recover or don't recover on the landscape is far better understood now. It's been a very gradual process and it's been challenging because uh, frankly, the technical and technology um, aspects of health have not advanced at the same rate as our demands have asked for. So what we've got is a pattern of, oh, we've got a new bug. Um, oh, we've got some new technology to apply to that bug and to the animals. And here's our new theory. And that that has changed that pattern has repeated itself and it's it's left us with a little bit of confusion with some of the partners uh, that we have, including domestic sheep producers. They don't understand why we just keep changing uh, the story a little bit. Um, same story, but it's just been refined a little bit more. Well, that's the case with any kind of disease process. Um, it's the case with livestock health. It's the case with human health. And I think if people just settle down and, and, and read or listen to the story um, through tools like, like the mycoplasma ova pneumoniae film transmission, I think, uh, I think people can start understanding uh, the process of, of understanding health. So are we in better shape now? I think we're in better shape because I think we understand the processes better. Um, can we get back to the same state that uh, wildlife were in in the 60s or the 80s? I'm not sure because I don't think we have access to the same landscape that we did then. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be optimistic, but I am um, really cognizant of the fact that there is a lot of struggles going on right now um, on the landscape for, uh, for jobs, for resource extraction, for uh, communities to be sustainable. And at the same time, uh, animals and their habitats are under huge pressures. So are we gonna have the same thing everywhere that we've had the luxury of um, access to in the past? Probably not. Um, will we have some access? Probably yes. But um, bighorn sheep, I think, are, on, are gonna be on the landscape for a long time. Uh, some of the doom and gloom that we hear now, it's been going on for decades and we just now understand it and we understand some of the ways to fix these problems. Um, we don't have all the answers, but at least we have, um, we have some things to try. So I think in some ways we're better, in some ways we're worse. Great. Um, yeah, well said. Now, uh, one thing I, before we, I, I want to get back on track with kind of your, your history, but one thing I wanted to ask you about is you talked about um, 
uh, understanding the respiratory disease in bighorn sheep, and that was part of your your master study. Um, were we dealing with the same? Was it Movi back then in the eighties, or was that was it a different bug? You said there was different bugs throughout the years. Were we dealing with Movi back then? Do you know what we're dealing with back then? I think we were dealing with Movi back then too. We okay. just couldn't identify yeah. it. If if you look at if you're a pathologist and you uh, process slides from a dead sheep and you look at it uh, microscopically, uh, you will see the same lesions in animals that I uh, worked on in the 80s, as you see now. Um, the pneumonia looked the same. We just didn't recognize it was mycoplasma, but the pattern is the same. We couldn't identify mycoplasma in those days, but uh, I, I think I have every confidence that it was mycoplasma then too. Mm, okay. Okay, uh, good. I want to talk more about disease and stuff, but let's talk a little bit more. So you finished up your master's and then where did things evolve from there for you, Helen? Um, I continued being a, a, a veterinarian, uh, doing mixed practice on Vancouver Island and writing my thesis by hand. I didn't have a computer. Um, so that's why, one of the reasons why it took uh, quite a long time. And uh, finally, I, was, I started putting myself out there in the world. I was, I was really fortunate. I had really excellent collaborators for doing my master's. I, I joke that it was probably the cheapest master's ever done because I had so many people offering help to me and doing lab work for nothing or, you know, helping me in the field. I was really, really fortunate. And I, I should add that that master's was funded by the wild sheep uh, or in those days, the foundation for North American wild sheep. Um, they were, I don't remember how much they gave me, but they uh, had no hesitation in, in funding me and were incredible supporters. Um, I, I, I learned a, a really important lesson that um resource users are the ones that pay for things. When I left high school, I was a card-carrying Greenpeace and Sierra Club member, and they didn't support research on wildlife. The resource users did, the miners, the foresters, and the hunters. So that was a huge shift for my head, and uh, I've never looked back from that, uh, that concept, even though I'm not a hunter myself. Um, what did you ask me? <laughs> so just the, the, the journey of Helen. So where did you go from? So you were doing private practice. How did you end up in the government? I guess, you know, oh, okay. so you ended up running wildlife uh, as a provincial veterinarian for BC. Yeah. How did, where did, when did you get, end up in there in that channel? Well, well I started doing some consulting um, wildlife veterinary consulting. Um, and I had some, really, really great gigs, um, primarily in the spats easy, um, collaring moose, collaring bears, collaring wolves, uh, in the days where, uh, spats easy, uh, provincial park was, um, supported by a group called the spats easy association for biological research, Sabre. And they had a senior biologist, Dave Hatler, who was uh, looking for somebody to help him immobilize moose. And he called up one day. I don't know how he found me, um, but he said, can you get the drugs? I hear you're fun to work with. And I said, I can get the drugs and I am fun to work with. So I, I had several years where I would go up to Spatsizi for a couple of weeks in the fall and a couple of weeks in the spring and uh, 
do what I always wanted to do and, and capture animals by helicopter, take samples, do that. And, and again, these collaborators that I worked with on my master's uh, led to projects in the Yukon. Um, I'm probably the first female to ever catch uh, dolls rams in the Richardson's in the Mackenzie Mountains. And we uh, translocated a bunch of uh, mountain goats from Kluani National Park to um, uh, oh, Jake's Corner, uh, where where the Yukon Highway hits the the Deese Lake Highway, and uh, just had some great adventures. I was really, really, really lucky. And all this time, um, I got occasional contracts from BC government. And one of them was a uh, gap analysis for wildlife health. They did have a biologist at the time doing wildlife health. Her name was Laura Fries, and she worked her ass off um, learning as much as she could about wildlife health. In those days, no computer. It was all paperwork. It was all memos in triplicate. And she taught herself who were the right people to talk to, um, they did research. Uh, she did a great job, but she wasn't a veterinarian. And she, I think, had some um, challenges because she didn't have that, that education. So I wrote this gap analysis and said, here's what I think you should do with wildlife health. And uh, by the way, I'm a vet and I'm available. And they hired me part-time to start with. And one of the driving uh, reasons to hire me was that at the time, Health Canada was putting some major restrictions on access to drugs for immobilization of animals. Um, their, their feeling was that only veterinarians should be uh, drugging wildlife uh, because they were the only ones that were trained correctly. And so a group of uh, like-minded veterinarians and myself uh, put together a course, uh, a national course to be delivered to conservation officers and biologists and those that were interested in, in uh, immobilizing wildlife. And that course became a course, a standard across Canada with agencies. And uh, was I started delivering it in BC, I think in 1992, 93. And that was another real uh, strong reason to justify hiring a veterinarian. Uh, while I was on for a few months, there was, um, lo and behold, a cutback. And uh, because I had no seniority, I was uh, removed from my position and uh, had uh, a really good lesson in, in government bureaucracy and how to justify your existence within government. And, I had already developed some really good relationships with the conservation officers and some of the regional biologists, and they supported me. And after about, I think it was about another six months, they had gave me a temporary assignment as a range officer, which was kind of challenging. And, uh, and then eventually created an FTE and hired me full time. And that um, carried on until little over a year ago. Uh, the, the, the biggest challenge for the job was telling people who I was and what I could do for them. And uh, second biggest challenge was probably saying no, because I did everything for everyone. Anybody asked anything, I'd 
I'd try to make it happen. And so it was trying to insert yourself without um, taking over, uh, trying to be part of the team, uh, adding a little bit of veterinary medicine and a little bit of um, health assessment into a mix where traditionally uh, the biologists did, did everything on their own. And things, things have changed remarkably over those almost 30 years. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, Helen, about the biology end of things and wild sheep. And and what I'd like to to sort of dive into is uh, disease, mycoplasma ovi pneumonia, and not so much about the science behind it, but the evolution of it and understanding it and kind of where we're at now. Of course, Wild Sheep Society BC, we've been involved with the Fraser River Project, um, and there's been some pretty significant things going on there. So there's that aspect of it. I want to talk about that, and then I also want to talk on the domestic side. And the work that you're doing in the Kootenays with um, the, the the new drugs that we're trying with Batril and that treatment as well. So maybe we'll start on the wild sheep side and about you know the evolution in what you've seen. Maybe we can talk a little bit about test and remove and new strategies that are being employed and what's happening with uh, mycoplasma in BC in the current state and the change in the past decade or several decades. Just a tiny little question. Um, Well, for the record, the first time mycoplasma ova pneumonia was ever recognized uh, was in British Columbia. Uh, During the 1999-2000 bighorn die-off that started in and around Vaso Lake, um, we had the luxury of a, a really brilliant virologist at our animal health center at the time. And we had a brilliant pathologist who had retired and was living in Enderby. And the two of those guys got together and sampled some bighorn sheep and applied a new technique called polymerase chain reaction or PCR to the tissues of the animals that had died and got a positive hit for a mycoplasma, uh, which later was identified as mycoplasma ova pneumoniae. Um, At the time, we thought, well, that's really interesting. We always thought there was a mycoplasma in there, but never could identify it before. And kind of put it to the side that maybe that was a really important factor. Um, I was invited to Idaho to a meeting with the Hell's Canyon Research Group, and I mentioned that we had identified a mycoplasma and that this might be something that they could apply to their very uh, extensive research program. And Anybody who has any interest in wild sheep knows about the Hell's Canyon project and how successful they've been in identifying what's going on with mycoplasma ova pneumoniae. But it, and it probably didn't start with my suggestion, but uh, I like to think that BC played a little tiny role there too. We then, um, when, when um, Hell's Canyon started finding that mycoplasma was everywhere and was a significant pathogen for babies, baby sheep, we started looking at archived serum that we had uh, in British Columbia from collections uh, done in the Okanagan, done in, the, um, in other places where disease had become a factor in bighorn sheep. And we had some positive hits. Um, uh, the University of 
Washington and Pullman had developed a serological test and we could go to archive serum and look for antibodies for mycoplasma. And we certainly found it in bighorn sheep that had survived the die-off in the South Okanagan. We found it in bighorn sheep that had survived a die-off in chasm, the chasm herd near Clinton. Uh, but we really didn't have a lot of archive serum from other bighorn sheep populations. And Finhorn populations had no antibodies. Uh, mountain goat populations had no antibodies. So we thought we were in pretty good shape. Then we started seeing some more lamb mortality on the Fraser. I consulted, or, or frankly, um, a number of us talked to a uh, researcher from the University of Saskatchewan, and he and a grad student went to the Fraser um, a subherd on the east side of the Fraser and uh, did some collections, uh, found a mycoplasma. They actually were able to get a mycoplasma to grow, and it was mycoplasma ova pneumoniae. Uh, the grad student went back the following summer and could find nothing sick. But we knew that uh, at least in uh, somewhere around about two, 2011, I think it was, we had mycoplasma on the east side of the Fraser. So a little challenging, but every time we've had a die-off pretty much in BC since, mycoplasma has been there. Uh, somewhere around about 2018, uh, with the help of Wild Sheep Society of BC, Chris Proctor and his partners uh, started a extensive uh, sampling program on the Fraser uh, in both region three and five, um, capturing animals, collaring them, and applying um, really intense sampling uh, protocol that was developed as a standard by um, the uh, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agency's Wild Sheep Working Group. Those guidelines um, detail uh, basically a set of standard protocols and a set of standard samples to take uh, so that you can compare health between wild sheep and goat herds. And they did that. Uh, very expensive project, but what it did was highlight the fact that mycoplasma was present in multiple populations on the Fraser. We don't know if that mycoplasma is the same one that was there in the in the mid-2000s, um, but it there was evidence of, of mycoplasma. So the, the question was, what do we do about it? And again, fortunately, we have uh, colleagues in the U.S. that we could learn from, and they started uh, applying techniques to clear their populations of mycoplasma in the Hell's Canyon uh, metapopulation. And what they went ahead and did was, because they have such an intensive research program, they would be sampling animals on a regular basis, the same animals over and over again, and they decided that if if those animals uh, were sampled and were mycoplasma positive for at least two out of three sampling sessions, they would be removed. And their removal techniques are often live animal removal. Those animals are placed into a research facility so more can be learned from them. Um, and some of that is just simply because uh, they're able to do that. They have access to those kind of facilities. Um, in speaking to uh, the group in British Columbia that was interested in, 
in treating these herds, we didn't feel that that was something we could do. Area is just too remote. We have no way of removing live animals and holding them. And we, the idea of being able to test them more than once, uh, more than twice, is pretty difficult just simply because uh, it's too hard to do. It's too remote. It's too challenging for those animals. And frankly, it's, it's too risky for everybody. Uh, at the, about the same time, there were researchers in the U.S. working with a new model of PCR um, testing where the PCR testing could be done in the field. And um, uh, there was a, some re uh, research postgraduate uh, researchers working on these machines. Um, the company's name is Biomeme, and these portable PCR uh, units are not cheap, very expensive, but they were holding some real promise that this was something that you could do in the field and make a decision about removing animals right away if they were clearly positive. Uh, so the Wild Sheep Society and the Wild Sheep Foundation both purchased uh, units for wildlife health for the Fraser Project. And for the first time, we were able to test animals in the field and uh, remove them uh, because they were mycoplasma positive. The removal, the reason for the removal is that even, those an even though those animals have survived uh, being infected with mycoplasma ova pneumoniae, and they may actually look reasonably healthy, if they're carrying this bacteria in their nasal sinuses, they can shed it. They can shed it to other animals that they're in close contact with, but most importantly, they can shed it to newborn lambs that have no immunity to pretty much anything. And the pattern that's seen with mycoplasma ova pneumoniae infected bighorn sheep herds is that lambs are born, but by the time they're six to eight weeks of age, they're dead. They do not survive. And that is because their mothers or uh, other ewes that are present in their maternal groups are shedding the bacteria, they pick it up, and they have no way to fight it off. So the idea of removing infected ewes is to support the production and the survival of newborn lambs. So we were very anxious about this project. <clears throat> we, um, and I didn't do all the legwork whatsoever. Chris Proctor and Fran Iredale and others uh, spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people. Uh, Wild Sheep Society members and volunteers uh, spent a lot of time fundraising and also talking to a lot of people. And the research design was developed so that a herd of sheep that had had zero lamb production or zero lamb survival for two years in a row was to be captured and sampled uh, in the field. That field sampling would um, result in either the animals being released from the field or removed, uh, euthanized on site. Sorry about that. The husband uh, walked through. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> with any luck, the dog won't walk through too. So um, uh, our, our first year was just when COVID hit. It was uh, 
really, uh, it was really an interesting session. Uh, we had a ton of people in the field. We had a wall tent set up. It was cold. It was windy. We had animals brought to a central processing site where we'd sample them. And then Sherry Wilmot, my research biologist or wildlife health biologist, would run the samples with the portable PCR. We hadn't used it before. It hadn't been used in that kind of a, a field setting before. We actually got uh, really anxious about it and and uh, did a satellite phone call to the to the company that manufactures it, tried to get um, some of their help to clarify what we were doing wrong, what we were doing right. All this time, the animals that we were sampling were sedated and they had to be sedated for up to, well, over an hour in some cases. So we had people sitting with the sheep and this is all really well um, visualized in, in the film transmission, uh, what it took. When uh, we got a clear positive, uh, I would come out of the tent and walk up to the animal and say, I'm sorry, this animal's positive. We're going to be removing it. And I would kill it on site, necropsy it, sample it. If the animal was negative, we'd release it on site, uh, give it a reversal agent and reverse it. Um, very controversial. Um, not appetizing to many of the people that were on site, uh, including First Nations that were um, solidly behind us, but um, not happy about killing animals that appeared to be healthy. We, we discussed it a lot on site and that this was for the good of the population. And, and, you know, I'm happy to say that after that first year, we didn't have to do it the same way again. We didn't hold animals sedated, um, partly because of COVID, because we couldn't have that kind of a group together again. Um, but we also, I think, have modified it to a way that works better for us and certainly works better for the laboratory procedures. We get a, a better, clearer reading. Uh, we can be a lot more confident about, confident about the results. Uh, but that first year was um, was quite a rush. It was it was pretty intense, and uh, I got to hand it to the group that were there. They handled it beautifully. Um, when things went south, when people were unhappy, we discussed it, we explained it, and uh, they were they were awesome. Just the best bunch of people um, you could ever ask to work with. The results of that that first year were amazing. Um, that herd of somewhere around about 50 ewes had not had a lamb survive for two years previously. Nobody'd seen one uh, past uh, the summer. And in the following year, uh, there was uh, 50, well, 25 lambs, so 50% survival, which is pretty much unheard of in British Columbia anyway. It's certainly possible, uh, on the landscape with good nutrition and uh, reasonable numbers of predators to get that kind of numbers. But we hadn't seen that for, for years and years and years. So we went back and captured uh, some of those yearlings and they were sampled. Uh, they had, they were not carrying mycoplasma ova pneumoniae and had no antibodies uh, indicating that they'd been exposed to it. So we felt like that was uh, an incredible success story then I, I can't really give you numbers of uh, the following uh, years right now, but uh, suffice to say that 
such an incredible effort, such an expensive effort has actually um, resulted in better survival, um, better health. And uh, we that particular project is ongoing, as you all know, and will be continuing probably for the next five years as we work our way up the Fraser towards the junction and uh, learn a little bit more about wild sheep health up there. So, Helen, you know, we've seen this lamb recruitment. Um, and, of course, this is being done in, in stages. So every year uh, an area goes out and gets completed. Uh, you know, based on y- your preliminary and results and what you're seeing, are you confident that we're going to see numbers increasing in, in the Fraser River ecosystem? Or are you, you know, you're speculative or, you know, I know you're always heavy on the science side, so you're, you're going to look at data, but how do you feel? Like, what's your gut feeling from what you're seeing? Is this, is this really encouraging? I wish we'd done it 10 years ago or five years ago. I th- some of the subgroups that we worked on this year are really low in number um, and we're really heavily affected. So I think there's going to be some subgroups that are going to wink out. Uh, just because we haven't got to them soon enough. Um, So some of those populations are probably going to need some supplemental animals. So we may get into the business of doing translocations again, and that's going to have to be done very, very carefully so that we don't make the situation worse. But I think this is the answer for the Fraser. I think we will get uh, some really good populations going again if we can combine the health work with habitat work and other types of protections. um, I think this is going to be a domino effect that we will see results and that will feed into more support, more funding and more sheep. I'm pretty confident of it, but I am worried about some of these little subgroups that, you know, have really interesting migration patterns or, you know, have been there forever, but they're just not doing very well. And this is a pretty aggressive management tool. Um, it, it, it may not make that much difference for some of those ones. Um, so I think we'll have to use some other tools to bolster um, the resiliency of some of those little, littler populations. Yeah. So for our listeners, I guess, um, and you back me up on this, but I think, you know, at, at its peak, the Fraser River ecosystem was around that 2,500 mark for for numbers. And, and we've seen it down to roughly 800 is where it was in the last few years. So um, I guess the end goal would be a carrying capacity in that two to 3,000 range, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Fraser River population has gone up and down and, and probably has had um, a number of different um disease events that we don't know about, but some we do know about. Um, I, I've been, uh, some of the historical stories about areas like Churn Creek, where uh, gold miners brought in large flocks of domestic sheep, uh, probably resulted in disease transmission to bighorn sheep in those areas um, decades and decades ago. Uh, So, you know, maybe we have some residual uh, holdovers that where animals uh, or animal populations just don't do that well because there's been there's been too much um, impact on their health. Um, we were pretty aggressive about removing um, portions of some of those herds at Big Bar and at the junction for translocation projects into the U.S. Um, it it helped the U.S. out uh, a huge amount. 
And whether we were lucky or not, uh, those populations uh, didn't appear to have health challenges and certainly didn't appear to carry mycoplasma. But it, it did hit, I think, our populations pretty hard and probably took a little bit of time to, reco to recover from uh, removing a bunch of really good, healthy ewes. So, you know, maybe we did some negatives towards some of those populations in the past and it's time to support them and try to learn a little bit more about them. Um, I, 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 I really do have uh, some optimism and um, I, I think with the, the participation of, of groups like Wild Sheep Society and the First Nations that are highly interested in, in sustainable sheep populations again, uh, I, you know, I do think we have uh, a lot of promise, a lot of, a, a lot of good things to, to come. Awesome. I, I love, love hearing that. And it's uh, such an exciting project to be part of. So I think we're in year three or four right now of, of that Fraser River project. And, um, and I know you were a big part of making it happen and a big part of the execution. And you were on the landscape again in February, March this year as well. Um, is this ongoing for you? You recently retired from government as the provincial wildlife veterinarian. Are you continuing your work? Will you be out there next year? What does that look like? Are you contracting to them? How does that work, Helen? Uh, retirement, uh, cold Turkey would have been really hard for me. Um, there were a lot of projects that I was pretty passionate about that I couldn't put the time and energy into when I was a full-time employee of the government. Uh, so retirement is allowing me to pick and choose. And for me, wild sheep will always have a high priority. Um, wild sheep have been really good to me and, and I want to give back to them. So I will continue working in this project uh, as I'm invited to, uh, as a contractor, as a volunteer, uh, any way that I can. So I, I hope that that continues, but I can't predict what budgets and, you know, maybe somebody's going to get tired of me eventually yelling at them. So, but I'd, I'd like to continue working with it. <laughs> Excellent. So you talked about retirement now and not going cold turkey. So obviously we know your involvement in the Fraser River project. Is there other projects you're involved in across the province? Is it other sheep projects, other non-sheep projects? What does that look like for you? Well, I, I continue supporting the uh, BC Sheep Separation Program. And I have been uh, working with that particular program and uh, some research efforts with domestic sheep uh, to develop a protocol to clear domestic sheep flocks of mycoplasma ova pneumoniae. Um, you referred to that earlier and uh, part of that research has involved applying a protocol that was developed by researchers in the U.S. to small flocks. Uh, we have two flocks currently that we have had uh, treated using an antibiotic protocol. And we've had mixed success. Uh, we have had success, but not 100%. Um, and we're currently working up a paper to publish where we detail what exactly we did, what exactly our success was, and what exactly our recommendations are. And um, in both of these flocks, mycoplasma of pneumoniae behave differently than it does with 
the average uh, domestic sheep. It caused significant health challenges to both flocks to the point that the producers, the owners asked for help um, through the Wild Sheep Society of BC. Not through veterinarians weren't able to help them. They came to Wild Sheep Society and the Wild Sheep Society has funded this research 100% of the way. And we have had some success, as I said, but we are also really emphasizing the fact that there are some management tools that we have to apply at the same time that the drug's not going to do it all by itself. Um, there are animals that are going to have to be culled. There are animals uh, and biosecurity rules that have to be followed. And there are uh, a lot of educational tools to have to apply to farming sheep, just like farming bighorn sheep. Um, if, if we want to be successful in keeping everything healthy. Uh, we still are, um, we're, we're in the middle of a kind of morphing the domestic wild separation, um, sheep separation project or program into something a little different where uh, we're, we're working with a producer, a domestic sheep producer, to do some significant outreach in the East Kootenai um, and making it worth their while uh, to understand more about mycoplasma ovidemoniae, uh, perhaps going as far as testing their flock and perhaps uh, encouraging them to keep their flocks mycoplasma ovidemoniae free. Uh, that is really hoped um, that it can become part of health management of domestic sheep, just like we're hoping it becomes part of managing wild sheep populations, that mycoplasma ovidemonia does impact your bottom line, whether you're breeding bighorns or domestic sheep. And it, it can be managed just like any other infectious disease. So th that's, um, that's an interesting uh, road to travel and we're not 100% sure how we're going to get there but we're doing as much education as possible again a plug for the transmission film we think that it it uh, is a, a really good overview of the issue for certain um, domestic sheep producers and that it can be successful uh, can be successfully managed um, as opposed to 100% treated I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, it's a pretty complicated topic. But yeah, I'm going to continue doing that. I'm, I do have some other contracts that I'm doing for, um, for government and for NGOs, um, but I'm probably going to scale back a little bit and just focus mostly on sheep. Fantastic. Well, we we're grateful for that. Thank you, Helen. And you've always been such a uh, a huge help to us and such a great support. And we were just so grateful for what you do for wild sheep and then the support you've given the wild sheep society, of BC. I just can't say enough about what you do. So now uh, one thing I wanted to touch on was, um, and, and I know you're retired from government and, and very respectful. Uh, are you, how do you feel about talking a little bit about policy? Ag has been doing their part. They've been at the table supporting us trying to work through this uh, but really, at the end of the day, there's not really much coming up from policy yet from uh, the Ministry of Ag when it comes to domestic sheep separation and wild sheep separation. We've seen the control order in the Yukon, which was a very big, big thing and would have, you know, would have a pretty significant effect here in BC. 
Um, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but if you want to talk about it being retired, I'd love to hear from you on it. So, um, there have been uh, a number of times in my career that we have gone to Ministry of Agriculture in whatever iteration it was and asked for their help, and we have never had any support from them. Um, other than the Animal Health Center and laboratory diagnostics, et cetera, and they've been they've been awesome. But in terms of policy, in terms of taking this particular organism seriously, uh, nothing at all. In fact, it, there was a lot of opposition that it was even a serious issue for wild sheep. I think that's changed, especially in the last couple of years. There was a minister's strategic working group that um, uh, was an extremely challenging project to manage. And uh, Ministry of Agriculture assigned uh, a senior level bureaucrat to manage us. And she did that uh, exquisitely well and continues to support us. Um, the minister has agreed with the recommendations from that working group, advisory group, I should say. And, um, but we, over the last couple of months, have had it stalled in terms of next steps and who's doing what and decision notes, etc. And that is incredibly frustrating. It feels like here we go again, um, beating your head against a brick wall. Um, and I, I have the I have optimism that we just have to be patient. That some some uh, bricks need to be aligned. Maybe not bricks, but uh, pavers have to be aligned correctly, and this will continue to proceed. I think we have developed a good enough relationship that um, we we do have access to people, the agriculture minister, who can make this happen. Um, but the policy piece is super, super important. We will never get a control order like Yukon did. We have too big an industry here. It wouldn't work. It would be too uh, large and expensive, too many implications from delivering an order like that. But there are things that can be done that have been recommended and have been agreed upon, and those must be done. I... I um, I think agitating from the outside is helpful, but um, the people we have in in staff positions in government right now uh, have the skill set to be able to deliver this. It's just getting the bureaucrats to agree to take it seriously that is the challenge right now. And I I'm not quite sure what the holdup is, but I'm I'm really um, I'm hopeful that at least we can get a, f a few things delivered that can protect thin horns, that can really do a good job of, of uh, buffering uh, sensitive populations in high risk of contact areas. Um, I think education is a big thing. And if we continue this, this um, grinding process of educating people with, with tools like the film, with um, outreach to 4-H, with um, private screenings of the film, with First Nations coming on board, and they are in a big way. I, I think we can get there, but we have to apply the pressure. We have to continue that pressure on agriculture, as well as my ex-ministry, to take it seriously, to keep it uh, in the spotlight. Wild Sheep Society can do that.
Oh, we appreciate that, Helen. Um, those are, that's sage advice for us to keep keep up the good fight and our members keep doing their thing and reaching out to uh, to everyone and trying to do the right thing for, for Wild Sheep. But it's it's tough and it's been, you know, have you seen much of a change? You've been in it now for 20 plus years. Have you seen much of a change on, on the landscape? Have you, you know, are, are you, what are your thoughts on it overall and what you've seen throughout your entire career? Well, what I have seen over the last couple of years is domestic producers getting it um, and wanting to help and recognizing that it is an issue and they don't want to be part of the problem. They want to be part of the solution. And we have some really amazing leaders and leadership, uh, but we we're still plugging away at other people who get into the sheep industry without any education, without any knowledge at all, and don't think that they are part of the problem. So I, I, I think the education piece is, is critical. If people don't know that it's an issue, they're not going to understand and they're not going to want to help. They're not going to want to prevent it from becoming a problem. Um, so educating people, being on the same page, not pointing fingers, but um, helping people do the right thing, I think is really the best way to approach this. Every time we come up with a problem and we uh, get aggressive about it and point fingers, we're not doing anybody any favors at all. It's working together that really makes a difference. Well said. Well, Helen, we've taken over an hour of your day, and there's still another hour of content, and we just got to have you back. So uh, we appreciate you taking the time, but um, honestly, I, I'd love to have you back. And maybe, um, you know, I know you're going to be busy this summer, but we get back in the fall and we start chatting a bit more. And there's a whole bunch of other issues around wild sheep we'd love to to, to chat about. We, we know, like, mycoplasma is a big part of it, but there's other diseases and a whole bunch of a host of other issues that wild sheep deal with as well. And this is kind of the, in the forefront, but we also know that it's much bigger than mycoplasma over pneumonia as well. So, um, but I want to thank you personally for everything that you've done for wild sheep in British Columbia, first and foremost, and then just the support you've given the wild sheep society, BC, um, anytime that you're involved, it just makes me happy because I know that we're doing good things for wild sheep and I'm so thankful for your work. Well, Kyle, you're more than welcome. Um, we are not individuals. We're the team, and uh, we all believe in the same thing. We have the same vision, and uh, I'm, I'm not the expert. I'm, I've just been around a long time. So I, I, uh, I appreciate what Wild Sheep Society does. You guys are – you guys rock. I mean, we Likewise. rock because I'm part of it. You are. You are. It makes me so happy when I see your name as a member. It's just – yeah, it's gratifying. So thank you, Helen. Um, I want to wish you good luck with the rest of your lambing. I know you got three lambs to, to get on the ground, and I'm hoping we'll see you this weekend. In So go out there and, I don't know, what do you, you give them curry or something to make them go into lambing or something? You, make it happen because we need you in, uh, in Whitehorse for the Thin Horn Summit this year. <laughs> Maybe I'll just be late. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah. I, I've helped with lambing with my family in Scotland. You basically stand there and yell at them for doing it wrong and then assist where needed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I, I would be in supreme shit if I wasn't here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Helen. Have a wonderful day, and uh, hopefully we can do it again this fall. I appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. Okay, guys. Take care.